Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. And ta-da, we made it. Here we are. The end of 2016. He says with uh, slight trepidation because I'm recording this with two days to go. And if what's been happening throughout the year is anything to go by, I really shouldn't be counting my chickens. But it's the end of the year and it's time to look back. And that's not an easy thing to do this year, is it? I don't know how your year has been. There have been delights along the way, for sure. But as soon as we cast our eyes globally, my goodness, it's really difficult to wander back through the year with a jaunty step, isn't it? You've got to factor in that there has been a lot of awfulness this year. Around the world, people have been enduring unimaginable horrors. A lot of people we cared about have fallen. And from my point of view, a lot of very unhealthy, unpleasant undercurrents are in danger of becoming the mainstream. So how do you do a review of a year like that? Well, we can confine ourselves, of course, to London, and we can focus on the very positive thing that we've had the pleasure of meeting around about 50 excellent people through the year who I hope have shed some fresh light on the city. One thing that's striking, though, when you go back through the recordings across the year is just how much miserable stuff is included there as well. So to hell with it. I'm going to go all out. We're doubling down on gloom. Far from dodging the problem or trying to finesse it, I've decided to grasp the bull by the horns. Here are my favourite six miserable clips from the last year. For your delectation today, we have war, we have sexism, we have poverty. By Jove, we have full-blown apocalypse. And as you know, I like a good dose of humour with everything, but I offer these clips to you not with the intention of making light, but with the idea that in some ways maybe this is what 2016 has been all about. I always thank my producer, Bernie Barkley, at the end of the show, but, well, I'd like to thank her now right here. And a special thanks to, to James Drury and to Laura Reynolds, who are the unsung heroes of getting the podcast to you each week. And finally, thanks to you, whether you've been listening, streaming, downloading, writing in, sending in suggestions for guests, or even if this is the first show that you've listened to. This whole thing would be absolutely nothing without you. I hope you've enjoyed the journey through the year. Next week, to start off the new year properly, we've got a London quiz that you can play yourself and test your knowledge of the town. But before then, let's go back in time. Let's go to West Norwood Cemetery in the first half of the year. Sheldon Goodman is my guest. How has our view of death changed and evolved over time, do you think? I think it is it is it is changing. It hasn't changed. There's still an awful lot. Well, I don't think there there won't be an endpoint. Right? No, there, no, there won't be an endpoint. But I think certainly, <laughs> ironically. you know, I, yeah, ironically, I think people are warming to the idea now more than ever and again i think it's because of the time that we live in whereas especially after the first world war death was seen as something that shouldn't really be celebrated but you know it was a very somber affair obviously but nowadays i think the celebration of life is pervading more than ever and maybe this is because of things like facebook where you can go on people's profiles and see them you know see the profile almost as if they were alive or you can see them alive on youtube the way that we live our lives now is that we are kind of obtaining a very... Well, I suppose it is a very weird sense of immortality in a way, mm. knowing that our pictures, our thoughts, our tweets, our ever are still being stored in a way that, you know, most of the people here never had, a, had access to. They might have had an odd diary or something, but, you know, now we can... We, it's almost like our streams of consciousness are incredibly online now. Well, we should get into specifics since we're on site. Where would we be looking for someone who's uh, piqued your interest? Uh, we're going to head up here. You'll see just in the distance there, there's like an arch. That is the grave of a man called Henry Wood. Now, one of the good things about West Norwood Cemetery, it's the second cemetery of the seven that were originally opened in the 1830s, is that the Friends Association has a very good newsletter, and it's, it's fascinating reading. 
and they also have a very strong uh, research ethic about them. They want to know who's here. They want to remember who is um, buried here. And in one of the newsletters, they actually had um, this chap by the name of Henry Wood. Now, I feel I know this name. It's, it's one of those names, though. It's one, there was a, um, a theatre by the uh, Langham Hotel. That was a Henry Wood theatre, but it's, he's got nothing to do with that. This is another one. But this particular headstone, I know nothing of this man, but I actually found a picture of the headstone when it was new, which I'm going to show you now. Obviously, the listeners can't see it, but if you give me a moment, I will get the um, image ready for you. But as you can see here, nice uh, marble arch. Yeah, this is about uh, six feet high. Six feet high. It's covered in ivy. It's clearly seen better days. It's a bit battered. It's a bit worn. But when I came across this image yesterday, that was it when it was new. Well, this is a shining white marble construction about the size of a, a large double bed with the arch in white over the top of it and an inlaid uh, area. That that's, um, ra- that's actually um, metalwork. It's the Tree of Life, and then in it is a uh, shield which says Henry Wood. And obviously in the front of the curbstones you've got a nice little flower bed. And now you look at it today and you think, oh my, uh, what, what's happened here? Time and I think also... Pilferers. When, pilferers as well, exactly. When... Obviously, when the cemetery was kind of reaching the end of its life, perhaps the, the, the guardians took their eye off the ball. And like many other cemeteries across London and the UK, any kind of ornate uh, metalwork or decoration was robbed away. Well, there's a more serious thing. We were talking about this just as we were getting ready to record, that it's no longer the ornate stuff or indeed uh, just uh, the metal no. that's going now. I couldn't no. believe this. No, um, again, th- this is news to me as well, and it's frankly worrying. The amount of uh, London stock bricks which are being pinched at the moment from all kinds of places, not just cemeteries and chapels, but from people's front gardens. I saw a picture in an article where someone's front wall, you know, which is probably no higher than anyone's knee, and someone just nicked the whole lot because apparently all these kind of DIY shows are really making people spruce up their houses. And London stock brick is also a very desirable thing, particularly in London, considering that most of the homes are built out of it. And, you know, thieves are stealing the bricks and selling them on for a pound a, a brick. I went to St. Patrick's in Leytonstone last week, and again it's a problem there i think um there was reports that uh, one of the people who worked there apprehended the people involved and they started lobbing you know rocks and bricks at him well they couldn't have been that valuable then well no exactly you know if you're nicking it and they're throwing it at someone then perhaps that's uh, something entirely but uh, that's just one of the things that faces you know not only spaces such as cemeteries but you know heritage generally as well you know churches are as, as much at risk as anyone else's going back on topic yes let's get back to it. um so west norwood cemetery um the second one that was open <laughs> was that, yeah was that supposed go. to be your smooth Segway. That was my smooth segue. It's about as subtle as a brick, which I've spoke about, which obviously all links in. It's getting better. It's getting better. Um, now we've got a Greek colonnade here. We have. If you follow me around here, what would happen when these cemeteries opened? They had a responsibility. They obviously had to provide burial space to the growing population of London. When we went to Hampstead Cemetery, that was stage two in the cemetery evolution. This is obviously stage one. And as you can see, generally speaking, not only in this little section here, but around the cemetery, the monuments are a little bit grander. These were open spaces and people wanted to show off particularly. It's kind of started to wane by the 1890s. Well, hold on. Can I nudge you back a little bit? When you you confidently assert that 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 was stage two in cemetery evolution, Mm. probably I need this pick down a little more firmly. Right, so obviously you had the Magnificent Seven open in the 1830s and 1840s, this was number two that was the first wave. I see and then obviously they weren't enough they needed to open more so people saw the successes and the failures of each and every single one and they started opening uh, more themselves so um, Hampstead was one of them opened in the 1870s but obviously at this stage when it opened what they used to do um, obviously they had to cater to a living population but they also had to cater to um, spaces such as the city churches in the middle of London now we'll just take a little walk after this we'll go and see the, um, the parish of St Mary at Hill but this is the Greek Orthodox necropolis now this community was originally based in Bayswater around the Cathedral of St Sophia and if you've ever been to Bayswater, there's not a great amount of places locally where you can inter your dead. So what the community did is that they got in touch with West Norwood and actually bought a plot for their community to use. And again, this wasn't uncommon. Um, you know, cemeteries like Nunhead and Highgate have very similar setups. But if we just have a look here, you'll see it is almost like walking to another country. We have the grand tombs of Highgate and so on, but here you'll see it really is something else. Mm. You've got the, uh, the Raleigh family... You've got names I can't even pronounce because I can't read Greek. But if we just go through this doorway here, this was a cemetery within a cemetery. 
And as you can see, the scale is just absolutely enormous. It's still obviously owned by the Greek community today. Now, this um, obviously only had a limited time span that it could be used before it filled up. And I think they opened a successor up in Hendon Cemetery after this one became full. We're standing in the throng here at the moment, and the graves are laid out on a much more grid-like system than perhaps in the rest of the cemetery. They are in blocks in reasonably ordered rows. And I think the thing that's setting them apart for me is that they resemble much more sarcophagi and uh, there are panels depicting very uh, traditional classical Greek scenes multiple figures in togas the statuary similarly reminds one perhaps of ancient Rome rather than ancient Greece The architecture is certainly more continental This is the chapel of St Stephen and this was built for the Raleigh family Um, The elder Raleigh his son died in Eton uh, while he was a schoolboy there and he was so bereft he uh, built a mausoleum for him here, which we see here. Now, this is not only a mausoleum, it's also a chapel, which occasionally the uh, Friends of West Norwood Cemetery open up for events. And I've been here before where there's been art installations put into the like doorways of all the mausoleums and stuff. And inside it's got like a, a, like a tiled floor and a gilt floor ceiling or what have you. And as you can see, the architecture clearly emulates the Pantheon in, in Greece. And you've got the reliefs there around the top. Well, this, this gives a lot of the impressive buildings in the city a run for its money, really. It, it, in, indeed, exactly. And also, when you think about it, who, who was being involved in their um, construction? You've got people like Giles Gilb- um, George Gilbert Scott, who did St Pancras. I think a member of the Scott family did this one, too. But if we just go up these steps here, you know, and it actually it's, it's quite nice to see actually this has been largely left intact. I think a lot of places would suffer from vandalism. But this, you know, this is particularly one part of the cemetery where death is tangible. You can see. If you look down there. And now you're, you're pointing. Uh, well, this is very interesting. So the thing we've just walked past and indeed we're, we're walking back around is a two or three feet tall block. I guess it's about six by eight. As we come around here, we can see where, where there would normally be a, a sandy or a gravelly bit with some flowers on it. In fact, it's a flight of steps down. And at the bottom there, well, it looks a bit unkempt. Yes, this you are literally peering into someone's tomb. Now, I don't know if, if, if the doorways obviously come away, but you can actually now see deep into the, the vault itself. And you can see the shelves where a coffin would be simply placed. Obviously, no burial here. Just place them on the shelf and leave them be for kingdom come. And for whatever reason, this is now exposed. I dare say something could be done about it fairly soon. But again, this, you know, particularly this part of the cemetery, you can actually look into that, that hidden side of things which you wouldn't see. You know, there's no closed doors here. You're actually looking into something that's actually a very intimate and private space, you know, which perhaps only you know, the family members saw on the day of interment or what have you. I want to ask you about that, actually. And it's on the back of reading an article just this morning about uh, urban explorers and rooftoppers and mm. all of those kind of activities where the boundaries are disregarded and the rules are ignored and ventures are had and photographs are taken and I was just wondering how your ethics work in terms of for example an opportunity like this to photograph something that isn't usually seen I I tend to avoid it myself because I think how I would feel if you know let's say I had a burial vault it came open for whatever reason vandalism wear and tear whatever it's only interesting to look at don't get me wrong but I think you know particularly in this bit there are people who still have living relatives and you hear you hear stories like let's say for example in highgate in the years of reckless abandon when the cemetery was just open for anyone to do what they wanted the catacombs particularly were broken into by the slightly more alternative crowd the goths went in there perhaps with their interest of black magic they used to break into uh, coffins and tombs and you know they also used to photograph and kind of just you know interfere with things which they probably shouldn't have done I don't agree with that, but some people, not saying like to interfere with it or anything, but certainly they have that kind of morbid fascination, which is ironic for me saying I run a blog on cemeteries to have a morbid fascination on something. But I think my interest and Christina's interest and other people around the blog's interest is more a case of respecting what's there and not disturbing it because I don't think really that that's not the point that's really not the point you know people say oh you know I'd, I'd love to you know break into this tomb why what what would that achieve mm. because at the end of the day the, the ones who pick up the pieces of the family or whoever owns it who have to do the repairs once you've had your bit of fun or you've you know satisfied your curiosity why just appreciate it for what it is these these particularly these monuments here they were built to be looked at not broken into inside there that's for the family outside's for everyone else 
Sheldon Goodman there talking about cemetery etiquette. Well, that was April, and we're going to fast forward to August now. And the interview that I conducted for the 6th of August with author Sarah Wise kept up the theme of gloom and death, um, which I realise has been stalking me throughout the year, actually. This interview I conducted with a coffin literally three feet behind me. And I don't mean a buried coffin or a coffin encased in something. We were in the basement of St. Leonard's Church in Spitalfields. A foot behind me was a small open door, two feet beyond that, 300-year-old coffins containing a whole family. The conversation was of rookeries. In uh, 1906, you get old age pensions coming in, which is a massive help. That helps to take a huge section of the poor out of poverty, or at least alleviate it. I've mentioned free school dinners. That really, really did help children. And you start to see the better classification and access to free care of the chronically ill or the chronically disabled. So it really was a kind of really happy combination of the well-intentioned wealthy, the increasingly literate and educated and curious working and lower middle class. And I do have to say, when the big changes came with the Lloyd George 1906 People's Budget, where you really start to see the foundations of what we recognise as a welfare state being put in place, one of the reasons he's able to push this through is because people were able to argue now, using statistics, using investigation that the countries that are taking care of their population are actually starting to outperform Britain, uh, namely Germany. If you have a workforce, let's just limit it to working men who are ill, in a terrible physical shape, their housing is awful, they're underfed, they're getting every disease that's going, you can't keep your factories running efficiently and you certainly can't get a decent army together Um, they had a real shock during the Boer Wars when they tried to recruit working men the amount of working class men they had to turn away because their health was absolutely shattered because of the appalling poverty they were enduring, you look across to Germany that's really starting to get itself together in terms of housing uh, in terms of access to healthcare and so I'm afraid a lot of the, the good changes that came about was simply because uh, they wanted a, a, a better functioning industrial war, war machine, which isn't very charitable at all. No, and up until that point, I was very excited by what you said. I was thinking about, uh, I was thinking about Freud, and I was contemplating the undoing of that sense of it being cool to be kind, and what seems to me to be a deterioration into uh, consumerism and feeding the self and all of that stuff that has been the hallmark of the late 20th century, I guess. And it just sounded like, you know, we've had this amazing blooming of technological advance in the 20th and into the 21st century, and it just sounded like socially that must have been a comparably very exciting time to be around. Absolutely right. And the other thing I could have mentioned is that things did generally get better Financially, because, as, as I've mentioned, from 1870, you have uh, the, the education of the working classes. And so what you get in the, a, a huge rise in, certainly in London, how, how it plays out in non-urban areas, I'm not quite so sure, you get a rise in better jobs, uh, which obviously pay more. So that's another way in which people are starting to be lifted out of poverty. I mean, classically... In the mid-1880s, you're a teenage girl, maybe you're 14. What are, what are the best options open to you? They're standing behind a bar for 15 hours a day, earning absolutely nothing uh, on your feet and in terrible circumstances. Or, if you're lucky, in one of the better quality shops. 20 years later, if you've done pretty well at board school you can start to, to get into the sort of pink-collar ghetto that's emerging. So typists, stenographers, lady clerks, uh, teaching. Um, so you are starting to get lower-middle-class jobs um, expanding and, and taking in a lot of uh, pe- you know, people whose parents would have been perhaps street traders. You're starting to get sit-down desk jobs which pay better. I'm suddenly thrilled with fear because some of the stuff you were describing there, it sounds to me as though we are regressing towards, if anything, if we think about the rise in multiple occupancy, the inability of people to afford places that are any good, the gradual denationalisation 
of the health service, things like that. I mean, there's, there's no doubt we're a long way from rookeries, but it sounds as though we're heading towards rather than away from. Not one to plug anything that Mr Murdoch does, but just earlier this week on Sky, there was a very, very good report, the new slums, uh, a camera crew and reporters going around certain parts of uh, now suburban East London and the absolutely appalling conditions that are coming back now. It's particularly horrific for me uh, because, of course, you think you're writing a book about the past, about history, and blow me down. You can see all this stuff coming back again. My own personal politics, with which your listeners may not agree, is that if capitalism doesn't work for anyone but a small percentage, you cannot be surprised that that, that certain phenomena return, you know, back from the dead, uh, come back uh, to haunt us. And, And what upsets me most is that we've been here, we conquered it, we very slowly and not entirely satisfactorily got a lot of it sorted. We know what works, we know what doesn't work, so why are we sleepwalking back into, I mean dreadful chronic injustice i just i mean it makes me angry but anyway i'll be not tub thump anymore <laughs> <laughs> why not no i always think that uh, who better than a, an historian actually to get some perspective on well, right-wing historians are available <laughs> yeah we often get accused of being uh, very very left-wing on the show let's come back to rookeries though we've traveled a long way from rookeries the devil's acre sounds oh, fascinating yes. it was just a nickname and i don't think really i'm not sure actually. Oh, what a what a nickname it's a great one and it's, it's slap bang up against um westminster abbey so uh, even more resonant for that yes well, just, no, hang on how did this come about because if galliard homes was putting together new development they yeah. wouldn't call it the devil's acre should do i'd buy one uh, if i could afford it um what can i say oh well actually uh, listeners, you may wish to find quite easily uh, Gustav Dore, one of his fantastic illustrations. Um, he, he went wandering around the Devil's Acre, and I think you'll easily find online his take on it. Just your classic um, rotting late 17th century houses that were probably fit for purpose once, but uh, over the centuries have de- deteriorated. And obviously, um, if you're poor, that's all you can afford. Uh, massive overcrowding, because of course, the more you pack together, the cheaper your collective rent is and so in the 1840s it was one of the most notorious sites there were many but that was one of them and the answer is what do you do how do you get rid of this two things you build something new called victoria street victoria street is one of london's i love these streets they're completely made up (laughs) they don't follow any particular natural line at all so you bulldoze this brand new very broad street and it connects Victoria right through to the Houses of Parliament. And one of the happy side effects is that you, at a stroke, you demolish lots and lots of really rotten, cheap, nasty property. So problem solved, isn't it? You, you, abo- you, you demolish a slum, no more slum. Of course, people very, very quickly spotted, well, actually, all you've done is you've made a couple of thousand people pack even tighter into the remaining stumps of horrific lanes and alleys. You haven't solved the problem at all. You've made it worse. The same thing happened all over London. They put these fantastic new streets in. Farringdon Road, at the same time, took out hundreds and hundreds of nasty little houses uh, in Clerkenwell, but all you get is people sort of packing ever tighter uh, in, 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 in a, around, yeah. I was sort of expecting that there would be some sort of solution reached, but no, that's, that's it, that's the resting point. Well, what you get in the 1840s is the start of the large-scale philanthropic housing companies. Now, these were charitable bodies, but they, they were, their sort of nickname was the 5% philanthropists. So the people, the wealthy people who subscribed to these companies um, from about 1844 did expect a return on their rental. So you get, I mean, down at Streatham Street near TUC House, you get one of the very, very first of these philanthropic blocks um, They look quite cute to us today, but I think they were viewed by the poor as kind of barracks. And, of course, when you put a block like that up, up, and it's run by (laughs) stony-hearted 
philanthropists. There's all these rules and regulations. So lots of poor people naturally rule themselves out because they did want their children to be able to kick a ball around. They did want to be able to have their washing out. So you get the start in the 40s and 50s of philanthropic blocks, which did their best, but of course... If you make, I don't know, 1,500 people homeless and you put up a block that houses 150 people, you've still got a massive uh, load of people who who have not been rehoused. And rehousing, the issue of rehousing, dogged redevelopment for about 30 years, really, until the LCC came along in 1889. Fantastic quote from um, a vicar. I see a vicar. Was he a bishop? Whenever he's trundling along New Oxford Street, which opened in the late 1840s, and that was bulldozed right the way through the St Giles rookery, he said, whenever I'm trundling along this street, I cannot help but think about the poor people who got turfed out, who once lived on this spot and aren't here now. What on earth have we done? So a lot of people thought, well, this metropolitan improvement malarkey, actually, it's not making any improvement for many people at all. Well, let's lighten the mood a little bit, shall we? But only within the parameters of today's episode. Do you want to go for the origins of the petrochemical industry or institutional sexism? Petrochemical industry? Right you are. So, this was uh, this was May, and I was meeting with Alice Bell and Max Wakefield, and we were doing a tour that was all about power in London. Power stations, the origins of power, solar power, and we found ourselves outside the Shell building. We have just passed under the arches of the I think that's the Hungerford Rail Bridge mm-hmm. sounds like the Hungerford Rail Bridge and we can see the eye looking as majestic as ever against a blue sky and to the left of it on the left hand side of the road we're on I think that's the Shell Building it is, it is the Shell Centre uh, so as you can see we're at another building site we're starting and ending this tour in building sites and it's being knocked down and rebuilt into another seven skyscrapers, I think, which people are, some people are very angry about. But anyway... Let, let me guess what's going to be in those skyscrapers. Uh, you know, free public housing. Excellent. Anyone can just walk in. Oh, good. Anyone can just walk in for the night. No, no one asks any questions. Hospitals, yeah. yeah. Science labs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everything you need, really, to run a society. Um, what we're left with uh, for the time being is, perhaps conveniently now, kind of on its own, the quite monolithic... Shell Centre and actually this was built at the same time as the Royal Festival Hall and Shell helped to fund the Royal Festival Hall because the British government was not very rich at the time having just fought the worst war in global history ever since then this is where their UK headquarters have been their global headquarters are still in Holland I believe because the full name of Shell is Royal Dutch Shell it's quite a long and interesting history as to how Shell ended up being the company it is today I think I'm going to hand that over to Alice because she tells this story best. Well, yeah, so big multinational shell, famous for trying to drill in the Arctic, discovered oil in Malaysia in 1912, Nigeria in 1958, a Anglo-Dutch, but also got, you know, it's shell, this is actually Shell Mex House because there's a Mexican company involved in it too. Big multinational company started off in the east end of London, in not far, a few miles to the east in uh, Whitechapel. And is, that, it, is that even possible? Well, Shell started in Whitechapel. And, and this is my favourite bit. It's called Shell because they used to sell shells. Well, what are you even talking about? So, uh, one Marcus Samuel, guy lived in the east end of London. He was Jewish. Some people say that his background was Iraq. Some other people say it's Holland. Could be both. Both would fit a particular narrative of the oil industry so I think we should probably be a bit maybe take those stories with a pinch of salt what we do know is that he was registered in the 1851 census as a shell merchant and he probably had a, made his money just buying stuff from the sailors that came in on the docks around the East End and selling them on. He probably sold shells that were quite fashionable, burgeoning bourgeoisie in London. You'd have little, you know, those little boxes. You can still buy them at seaside towns that girls would buy. It was quite popular at the time. And he would, he would buy import shells to make that. He also imported all sorts of other things, pepper, peacock feathers. <laughs> um, he had two sons, Marcus Samuel, who he imaginatively na- named Marcus and Samuel. So, <laughs> to their know, delight. Yes, yeah, so you have Marcus Samuel Jr., Marcus Samuel and Samuel Samuel. And together they built up this industry of transport and trading, import and exporting more and more things out of London. Some people say that he did so much global trade because London at the time was so anti-Semitic. There were very few people who traded him in London, so he kind of went elsewhere. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Um, certainly did seem to like to get around uh, he imported the first mechanical loom to Japan 
Um, and then there, there seems to be a bit of a career jump right there. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's well, he's, he's just trading. You know, you could maybe think of him as. Um, uh, you know, he's, he's an East End trader. Well, OK, so I'm imagining he's, he's selling these shells. Yeah. And then uh, somebody wants to get one of these little shell boxes and they say, I've got no money, but I've got this mechanical loom. Yeah, and some pepper and some peacock feathers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they built up quite a lot of trade routes and networks. And Marcus Samuel Jr. really took, really, you know, joined the firm, really built more and more. And so story says, in the 1890s, he's in the Caspian Sea in Russia and he's apparently buying some shells. I, I mean, I don't think he was on the beach picking them up. I think he was... He probably wasn't even importing shells. I think it's just a nice story. But he was, he was in the Caspian Sea anyway. And you can see the burgeoning oil industry there. You can see uh, Ludwig Nobel, who was Alfred Nobel of the prizes fame's brother, who built the modern oil industry in Poland and Russia, had commissioned... Uh, he made ships that could carry oil, the first oil tankers. Uh, Marcus Samuel saw those. Marcus Samuel Jr. saw those and he thought... Uh, I want to do this, I want to get in on this. You know, I transport trade and I want to do more than a mechanical loom. And he built the first purpose built oil tankers. So Ludwig Noel had kind of taken old ships and repurposed them to be oil tankers. Marcus Samuel built ships that could carry oil. And what's really important about those was they were the first oil tankers to meet the safety regulations of the Suez Canal Company, which meant they could take oil from the Caspian Sea all the way through the Suez Canal and that opened up whole new routes. And from that, they built this massive global industry. And so the story of Marcus Samuel and Marcus Samuel Jr. from the east end of London all the way around the world is, this, is a big part of the story of globalisation. They are at the centre of driving a lot of our globalised economy now and they're also very symbolic of a lot of other things around them. And yet he ended up, um, he ended up doing quite well for himself, Marcus Samuel Jr. He ended up being an actual oil baron, given a baronet for services in World War I. And his son had a lovely stately home in Kent, which you can now visit. It's run by the National Trust. And one of the nice things about that is the National Trust are really good on low-carbon technology, and they've just replaced the oil boilers with biomass ones. So if you want to go and visit a bit of renewable energy at an oil baron's house, um, I can recommend going down to Kent. I think it's Upton House or something like that in Kent. Well, that says a great deal about the speed with which his innovations and his products were taken on, that he was able to achieve that level of success in his own lifetime. Exactly. I think it's quite an inspirational story in many ways. I mean, it's awful in many ways, but also, I mean, he built this world that is locked into oil and the way that we are now, him and people like Rockefeller and the other oil barons. Um, but it's a sort of, well, if they could do that, we can do our own one. You know, we could have rapid change like that ourselves. So if they built that world, we could build another one. Uh, so I, I take it as quite a hopeful story. By the way, if you're wondering how the origins of Shell found its way into uh, today's theme, well, you know, figure it out. In case you didn't hear the episode that I recorded with Katie Wignall way back in February, I'm going to tease a question across the next piece. What year do you suppose a very popular bar in London finally started serving women? Let's leave that one hanging for a moment because we're heading back to August once more. It was a sweltering day uh, when I arrived at the Ben Uri Gallery and I was grateful for the cool of their basement. Down there they had a collection of pictures from the Second World War. My guests were Ava Mack and Katie Harris. (laughs) Well, pictures of ruins and damage all around us. This is... No, I'm going to throw myself at this person's name. You've said it a few times, I should be able to do this. Wolf Shushitsky. Shushitsky. Shushitsky? Sorry, Wolf. Well, the most striking image, first of all, on the left here is St Paul's Cathedral. And it's seen through. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What looks 
to be the ruins of a building. We're looking, I think, through a window frame that's just about survived. It looks as though the building around it has pretty much been reduced to rubble and the panes of glass have all been shattered and the frame within the opening for the window hangs at a funny angle. Through it, we see St Paul's Cathedral still standing. Yeah, so St Paul's built after, rebuilt after the Great Fire of London standing tall after what they call the second great fire of London one of the most destructive episodes in the blitz in London famously Winston Churchill insisted that St Paul's must be saved at all costs so um, surrounding buildings were pretty much sacrificed so that all the yeah they made a fire break didn't they yeah exactly yeah mm. so this is this is very much a, a, a tribute shot which I had never seen before and we were saying earlier the famous shot of St Paul's standing tall um, amongst the smoke. Yeah, it's the dome yeah. kind of appearing out of this fog of, of smoke. And this is just, to me, was an entirely new um, image on, taken from on the ground through these, uh, I guess it's steel metal... Yeah, we've got like through a frame a within a frame. Yeah, within, so through, this, through the grate. Yeah, formally really, really interesting as well, the, the barriers, the pillars of this, of this framework of a window kind of going along the, the pillars of yeah. St Paul's. It's very much protecting it, just yeah. as Churchill yeah. wanted it. Do not, <laughs> do not destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is it me? There is a quality to that picture that makes me feel as though that is utterly modern, and I can't quite place it. I mean, there's nothing about the subject that particularly suggests that. There's something about though, the quality of the photograph that seems so contemporary. Maybe, yeah. it's, maybe it's the absence of signifiers of it being a different time that lets you imagine it's now. Yeah. Um, and it looks as though also it's a photograph that you couldn't, you wouldn't probably have wanted released at the time. The sort of Victoria shot, I suppose, the miraculous survival picture with the smoke all around, but St Paul's uh, still standing. Mm-hmm. Much more celebratory. This one, yeah. this, this suggests this something else. At what cost, exactly? Mm-hmm. I think the, the the famous image is, you know, very kind of. It's become a bit of a cliche mm. um, whenever uh, an anniversary comes around of the Blitz or of, of um, a Second World War, then that kind of pops up. And this is grounds it more, quite yeah. literally, like from the ground, this is what it looked like after the Blitz. To me, it's amazing. London was destroyed and so much of the, of the buildings that have gone up after the war wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been for the Blitz, um, and especially in the city. Mm. Well, perhaps that brings us on, I'm not sure, Katie, to the picture just to the right here. Yeah, we've got, um, got a, a main road, and your eyeline sort of follows from the bottom all the way to the top, and you can see Tower Bridge in the distance, but just going along the road, you have bombed houses completely destroyed, and as your eye follows up, houses start to reappear again and in the distance the iconic London that you know even today is still there, still remains. Yeah, there's the monument, there's St Paul's Tower Bridge but yeah, these these plots in the foreground yeah. it's like one of the architectural digs on Saturday afternoon TV Yeah, yeah it's A set of low Time walls team spinning. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh... I've never seen anything quite like that before um, and there's a particular, you can see there's a particular junction where there where the bombing must have stopped or the fire must have uh, petered out. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, it reminds me of a, a sort of a game that, you know, a yeah, computer game exactly. that people play today that you can, you know, it's so well mapped out because it's, you know, gridded and you can really get a sense of, right, that part's destroyed, but that's bit still going, still alive. It used to be organised and orderly yeah. and now it's... Back to square one. Oh, so this is up. Some, uh, this says it's the view from St Paul's Cathedral. So that tower in the in the distance, I was mistaken there. So this is from St Paul's Cathedral. So that is the fire break just there. Yes. Um, oh. uh, let's keep going. I'm fascinated by these images. Yeah. Oh, there's the wax. The wax. Yeah. Oh, this is... Now this is this has warranted not only a photograph but also a display cabinet with some documents here. What's this all about? Uh, the picture, I should say, is. It looks like the side of a tube station. It's got that familiar architecture in the arches. But the banner being shown in this photograph outside the building says, War in Wax, the world's most modern waxworks. The horrors of the German concentration camps, all in lifelike and life-size figures, over 100 figures. Mm. Yeah, gads, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really shocking to think that this was an acceptable... um, 
like Madame Tussauds horror show it must have you know it's it's, London dungeon or that kind of it gives that kind of feel of yeah like a tourist attraction yeah Um, and these flyers it's just baffling really children's section um, children's section exactly Warren Rag said a pamphlet advertising um, I guess how kids can learn about the horrors of what was happening at the time. And this is pamphlet, it's 1944-1945. It's a perfect example, I guess, of a photograph bearing witness to something that I guess we can all kind of collectively forget or deny or, I don't know. bit of information here next to the photograph says, Wolf Sushitsky recalls photographing the war in wax in Oxford Street towards the end of the Second World War. Quote, this is the only obscene photograph that I've ever taken. I was too revolted to go in to investigate. End quote. A mere glance at the list of dioramas in the pamphlet below is sufficient to understand Sushitsky's revulsion. They are called things like the sealed wagon, tree hanging, and stamping to death, representing but a sample of the extraordinary waxworks that were displayed. That is extraordinary. Mm. Uh, this, <laughs> I, words fail me. Mm. I can't. And the and the price as well, you know, that you can you can you can pay extra as well and see <laughs> Churchill and Roosevelt. You know, it's just bizarre that it even existed. And you think about Oxford Street today. I mean, uh, it's hard to even correlate that that would even be there. It's that kind of thing where you wonder when people are in the moment and they hear about these things and. It just takes a while for things to sink in. Mm. So the the idea that this was, you know, informative and even interesting or to some extent mm. sensational, yeah. five, ten, twenty, however many years later is completely, you know, dumbfounding the fact that we would do that. But I guess there's things that would ha- that happen now where we delve into them and we, I don't know, show things on television where I guess later you might be like, well, that was kind of crazy that we that we considered that in that moment the way that we did and it takes a bit of distance to to kind of really see the scale of how horrible the things have been well I I sort of felt it went the other way I mean I've got a particular museum in my mind that's opened uh, not very long ago which takes grisly deaths from yesteryear and puts them on display and I'm not going to give them the publicity regular listeners to the show will know exactly what I'm talking about but the fact that in 1945 there would have been artists knocking together wax models of Holocaust victims seems, uh, well, I think my tiny brain can't quite cope with the thought there. I'm going to let that uh, percolate for a while, I think, and focus instead on the much more celebratory picture on the right here. And I can't get enough of these sorts of picture. Mm -hmm. VE Day, this is in Coventry Street, Piccadilly Circus, 1945. Right at the middle of it, we have a guy playing an accordion that may itself have been salvaged. It looks like it's just about to fall to pieces, but he's putting together a song. Everyone's clearly mid-verse, and they look absolutely exhausted. But, yeah. but they've got through it. Yeah, it's a, they're, not, they're not all happy expressions, are they? They're actually quite... Um, yeah, you're right, they look absolutely exhausted. I wonder what he's playing. Maybe it's a, a, a dirge or a lament or something. <laughs> it's a big crowd of people, and, and this one I think is really interesting as well. Look, looking at... Trafalgar Square from behind the head of one of the lion sculptures big crowd demonstrating in the way that we now see demonstrations people taking to the streets but they were actually demonstrating for the opening of a second front against Germany in 1942 so yeah really documenting history as it was unfolding Astonishing, so so this is a crowd of people who are asking for more war please Yeah, yeah, yeah Huh I know, the reversal couldn't be more pertinent, really. I mean, when you first look at it, you think it's VE Day, don't you, or Celebration, but, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a mass group of people wanting more. Did we we cover any happy subjects at all? No, I don't think so. Oh, there was the Toy Museum. Of course, what could have been happier than the Toy Museum? Except for the moment when I realised that Monopoly wasn't conceived in London. It's not a London game. Disaster. Uh, thank you, HH Geek, for your... Uh, I think that was a positive comment you made. Anyway, I promised you an answer to that question. And uh, here it comes from Katie Wignall of Look Up London. I think you get a nice, fuzzy feeling. It's not too bad. I've led groups down here before and we haven't been accosted or pushed out of the way so far. Also, I think um, 
maybe it's a nice thing if you have a particularly lenient boss to come and do on your lunch hour. Oh, now I see what you're thinking. Yes, absolutely right. Now I'm recognising one or two of the locations that we've recorded at before. And it seems that you're going to be showing us a bank as well, but not the uh, not the Lloyds Bank, just along the street here. No, although the interior on that is beautiful, I encourage you to duck your head inside if you're ever passing it. But what we're talking about is Gosling's Bank. There is a little sign... Um, if you look up where the current Barclays is and you'll see three squirrels. I see. OK, so this is one of those iron attachments to the outside of the building uh, that quite a few of the shops here have in the same sort of style as a community clock. But this one's a, an oval sign and embossed on it oh, very clearly are three squirrels uh, eating their nuts and what this was a sign of a bank yeah so Gosling's was a family run bank it was actually mentioned in uh, Samuel Peake's diary so he said there was a goldsmith called Henry Pinkney under the three squirrels on Fleet Street um, so we know that it probably was founded in the 17th century and something suggest it was founded in 1650. And I've got to say, I mean, who cares really? But as soon as you stack this up against Lloyd's Bank's horse or Barclays Bank, uh, what is that a griffin or an eagle or it's a, it's one of those things? A bird of another another taloned beaked creature. Fearsome, looking Fe- fearsome. Not only are the squirrels friendly, but they do actually have a relevance to the idea of storing something away and getting it back out later. Exactly. I always think they're a better representative for a bank, an idea of sort of squirrelling away your, your money. Some may find it surprising that it isn't a picture of Gosling's. Well, quite so, yes. But it was actually um, a different spelling of the name from the person who was originally a partner in the company where I think it got its name from so it was Goslin with L-Y-N um, I think it was a Mr Francis So they went They went to the trouble of changing the name and then not showing pictures of Goslings No, they obviously agreed with us that squirrels were the best Well, they should have changed it to Squirrels Bank, shouldn't they? Well, they should have but maybe Mr Francis was just too too preoccupied Do you think it was a negotiation with squirrels on one side Goslin on the other? Possibly Goslings is where they met there's also some more squirrels if you look up on the actual building of Barclays Bank behind you, which are rather sweet as well. The reason that they're here and this Bark- uh, building is a Barclays is because in 1790s, I think, Barclays uh, bought up a lot of family-run banks and uh, 20 in, in one year, in fact. So Gosling's is, was now part of Barclays Bank. I had no idea that Barclays Bank had been going on that long. Yeah, it is a very um, old company. Oh, there's a plaque there. Ah, Barclays Bank, PLC, Gosling's, established 1650. And a few people have said that if you went into that branch of Barclays Bank, they still have customer records from Gosling's customers going back to 1717. As we move up the street, we're now in the city of London. To our left, there is a building that, on its signs, which look kind of 1910E as far as I'm concerned. And they say things like Dundee Evening Telegraph, Sunday Post People's Friend, Dundee Courier. It's almost as though this street had, uh, at one point, a strong connection with the print trade. Funny you should mention that, because that probably is the thing that people associate with uh, Fleet Street. And indeed, here we really see the beginning of that association. And as you walk down, you'll see lots of buildings which still have names of newspapers on them. So DC Thompson, which still um, is on this spot, is possibly most famous for printing the Beano. And if you walk past the shop window, you can see uh, lots of the cartoons and, and figures inside. You know, for some reason, I thought it was published in Glasgow. I think it may have been originally published in Glasgow, but they're sort of paying homage to their product. Now, we've stopped opposite a church. Yeah, what we're looking at is St Dunstan in the west, a particularly dominant-looking church with a castle-like top instead of a steeple. Uh, What I wanted to point out was two 
very striking figures who are standing proudly. <laughs> Was that a deliberate pun? On <laughs> no, oh, I wish I had now. Uh, so they're striking in more ways than one because they are bearing clubs which chime in the bells every quarter of an hour, I think. Well, they're not wearing enough, especially on a day like this. No, but they are sporting a particularly fetching golden loincloth. And uh, one fellow has got his vast club in his hand and he's ready to uh, smite the bell at the quarter hour. And you know what, we've got six minutes to wait until the quarter of an hour comes and I can't be bothered. (laughs) Well, um, at least I I can tell you that these figures are Gog and Magog. Oh, okay. So they were mentioned in the Bible, they're kind of ancient pagan symbols... Um, there are some references to them being the last kings of the giants, if you believe in these uh, mythological things. They were seen as sort of guardians of ancient London. You say there are pagan figures, but mentioned in the Bible. Why would the Bible be mentioning them? Apart from to say, don't, don't do that. Well, I think they were perhaps pagan ideas that were taken by Christianity or <laughs> older than that. What do you mean? So, Gog and Magog are mentioned in the Bible. They have apparently came over from sort of holy lands and are seen as the guardians of London. Indeed, they're still um, used in the Lord Mayor's parade in September and carried as effigies down the street. In what way are they protecting us? I think maybe they were just very large, strong creatures that maybe some of the original inhabitants of London apparently befriended so they wouldn't destroy destroy the city. So a bit of a protection racket, really, then? Pretty much. The other thing I wanted to point out was the clock, which is sort of protruding off the building, and... It was the first public clock in London to have a minute hand. So it was put there in 1761, I believe. And before then, it didn't really matter if um, clocks were particularly accurate because it was only with the invention of the railways in 1830 that um, everything had to run strictly on time. So um, you would have just had the hour hand um, going round before that, but this was the first clock to install a minute hand. Well, I'm going to challenge what you're saying there because uh, I've no doubt that the prospect of missing a train, that is important, you do need to be in the right place at the right time. But are we seriously suggesting that up until 1761, if you were going to meet somebody, for example, you'd just say, I'll meet you round about 7 o'clock, and you'd just be kind of hanging around for 20 minutes. Think of the man hours wasted. That is what I'm suggesting. You are That's suggesting? That's what I think that that, um, that is what, what happened. Maybe you'd go for a very simple time, like noon, so the hand is directly up, and then everyone could be in agreement. I suppose you would have to, yeah. And of course, if you're using public clocks, because people wouldn't have timepieces in their pockets at this point, and you're relying on all the public clocks conforming to the correct time, well, we know that doesn't happen. No, that definitely doesn't happen. So you'd have to agree a clock. Yeah, so it must have been an absolute nightmare. Well, we are facing a fetter lane. Which way are we going? Uh, continuing oh. eastwards. Did you not just press the button on that trip on that... I thought about crossing over, <laughs> and then I thought we can very much stay... Are you trying to shake me off over here at that stage <laughs> of the tour? <laughs> this is how she does it. Well, we're going to talk about um, this shop on our right now, El Vino. Um, we can look at it from this side of the street or the other side of the street. Well, we're here. <laughs> let's do it. And it's a wine merchant's with a very glamorous gold sign on black. Yes, it was founded in 1879. That was the branch that was in the city of London, and this one was opened shortly afterwards. It was basically the post-work drink of choice for um, all of the clerks, lawyers and journalists that were busying around on the Fleet Street area. But I wanted to mention specifically that um, this was the focus of a struggle for women's rights. Um, This bar was always known for being a little bit old-fashioned, some might say backwards, and it was only 
1982 that women were allowed to be served at the bar. You are kidding. No, I am not kidding at all. So it was down to the work of two impressive ladies, Tess Gill and Anna Coote, who were a lawyer and a journalist, respectively, working in this area. And they were finding it detrimental to their careers because... Everyone was able to gossip at the bar. The journalists could talk to judges and lawyers. And the women were hauled back in this um, sort of back room, not oh, allowed... Oh, they were allowed across the, the allowed, threshold. That's very generous of them. They were allowed in, but not able to stand at the bar, which is where all the gossip was taking place. So the case was heard at the Royal Courts of Justice, just up the road. And were, they, were they allowed to be in the main courtroom, or did they have to go to a small courtroom at the back? I think at this point they were oh, allowed. That's very nice. So when it was announced that the motion had, had passed and that uh, Tess Gill and Anna Coote had won, the cries went up in Fleet Street. Everyone was actually very happy with the news. Possibly because the men no longer had to buy all the drinks at the bar. But that's just me speculating. Well, a, I've got to say, that's a very cynical view. <laughs> not at all, not at all. I'm sure everyone was, was very happy. And uh, the barman who was working at the time said, there's more women at the bar than men. It's absolute chaos in here. Oh, no. I know. I'm genuinely shocked. I'm not often genuinely shocked. 1982. Yeah. The excellent Katie Wignall there. And... Uh, there's only one contender, really, in terms of the output of the year remaining, and you'll have spotted it a mile away. In a selection of clips leaning towards doom and disaster, the episode that simply must be included was the uh, the one that I recorded with Rob Smith of Footprints of London. Rob was kind enough to take us on a tour themed around apocalypse. So if you are hoping for a laugh, you're plumb out of luck. We pick up on the north bank of the Thames. Yes, that's right. They were actually planning, though, for air war quite a long time before that. The uh, American inventor Hiram Maxim was... Uh, he was an inventor, and he came, comes to Europe. Do we, do we know him for a gun of some sort? That's right. He's mostly named for the machine gun. Uh, but before that, he was working on the idea of um, trying to build a new way of Europeans killing themselves, because he was told that was the way to really make money. Yeah, turn of the century, that was big business, wasn't it? Uh, so he's, he's planning on a flying machine that can drop bombs. The only trouble, is, when he's working on it in the 1890s, the, they still haven't got their combustion engine sufficiently powerful enough to f- make a, a plane like that fly. So uh, he has to scrap the plans, and then he goes to work on his uh, machine gun. And he has, develops a machine gun in his house down in Norwood. There he sets one up in his uh, garden and sort of keeps testing it there. He must have been the ultimate nuisance neighbour. <laughs> I've done this walk quite a few times, but the brightness of the day has alerted me to the enormous golden bird on top of an orb atop a column on the embankment there, just opposite the soon-to-be-toppled London Eye. (laughs) What is this bird? Uh, This is the RF uh, memorial. You can see the uh, Ad Astra, that's the uh, Uh, RF motto. And it's just outside what is now the Ministry of Defence, was the Ministry of War. And uh, that's in another novel where London is destroyed. Well, we talked about that earlier in Richard Doyle's novel, but it seems a favourite building, actually, to destroy. This gets destroyed in the 1978 book um, by General Sir John Hackett, uh, called The Third World War in 1985. And Hackett, um, he's a real World War II hero. He's wounded at the Battle of Arnhem, and then he becomes part of the NATO chief of staff during the 50s and 60s. But by the 70s, he's starting to get sidelined and his reports are a bit ignored and uh, he's really concerned about the Russian strength in uh, weaponry. So he thinks that uh, Britain's getting too weak. So he writes this book in which a Third World War takes place and the Russians start bombing London. And uh, one of the first buildings he makes sure is destroyed is the Ministry of Defence. I'm pretty sure that he's trying to get revenge on London there. Um, I wonder what he'd make of the present political climate. Well, I don't know. He might see it as a vindication. It's always possible. I think there are some people who really, you know, made a living out of the Cold War. And well, there was a, a lot of talk of bombs raining down and uh, nuclear fallout and all that stuff in the early 80s, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely, yeah. We, we yeah. seem to be a lot more casual about the prospect of going to war with Russia. It's uh, funny, uh, 
me, I grew up with that. And uh, I remember in our GCSE mock French, my friend Simon Thompson saying there was absolutely no point revising for this exam because World War Three will break out before it happens. <laughs> and it's just, uh, it's just a waste of time. Well, I'm kind of glad I did revise, but that was the kind of thinking we had. I remember a school assembly where uh, it was billed as a sort of normal assembly and then one of the RE teachers came rushing in and said, oh, have you heard the news? The missiles are on the way. We've got three minutes to live. And this was caused a little bit of alarm. I couldn't help thinking, how is an RE teacher at a secondary school sort of in the NATO sort of weight warning chain? Well, maybe they've got a direct line to somebody even further up the chain. Yeah, yeah, it's very possible, yeah. Sounds yeah. Like, like a recruiting drive yeah, to me. Yeah, it could be, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that was the plan. We were all meant to think, oh, we've only got three minutes to live, we better start to uh, repent. But that, that, that really fits in with another reading. Oh, we might be better uh, reading it before we get too close. Well, to no, we've got London going on around us, yes. The tiresome drilling noise in the background is three men on a boat. Not that sort of three men on a boat, not <laughs> Jerome K. Jerome. Seemingly uh, drilling into the side of the boat, the Tattershall Castle. I don't know if they're authorised to do that, but they're very busy. <laughs> And they're very noisy, so we'll stop here and, uh, and hear this reading, which is from... This is from a book by James Herbert, a horror writer. But he fits in with the time. It's written in 1984 when there was this fear of nuclear destruction. Uh, just as an aside, if you've been watching the old Top of the Pop 3 runs from 1981-82, every other song has a sort of thing about we're all going to die in nuclear war. So it was definitely something that was uh, a conscience into people's minds. And so he decides to have a scenario where a nuclear strike hits London and uh, he writes about where we're standing now well right here Yeah. Well, now, yeah. I, now I want to move quickly <laughs> <laughs> below the wide roadway curving slightly with the river was jammed with scorched immobile traffic another road equally wide veered off to the right towards Trafalgar Square the mist was minimal now but Nelson's column could not be seen Victoria Embankment, running alongside the Thames, was relatively free of debris, apart from vehicles, for the offices on the north side had been set back from the thoroughfare gardens and lawns in between. As expected, the buildings were no more than crushed ruins. The Ministry of Defence, all was gone. The Admiralty and the beginning of the Mall should have been visible since nothing obscured the view, but of course that had vanished too. He briefly wondered if all the works of art in the National Gallery, which was on the far side of Trafalgar Square, had been destroyed. What significance do they have in the present world anyway? As he knew they would be, the Houses of Parliament and Westminster Abbey at the end of the road he faced had been totally destroyed. Peculiarly, the lower section of the tower housing Big Ben was still erect, sheared off at a hundred or so feet. The top section containing the clock face protruded from the river like a tilted Rock Island and again surprisingly only the southern end of Westminster Bridge had collapsed it defiantly spanned the river just failing to reach the opposite bank the sun's fierce rays sucked up moisture from the Thames so it looked as if the water was boiling somehow it appeared to him that there were the intestines of the city's torn body exposed to the light and still steaming as all life gradually diminished masts of sunken ancient boats those that had been converted into smart bars and restaurants jutted through the rolling mist. Pleasure boats, their surfaces and passengers charred black, drifted listlessly with the current, the longboat funeral pyres of a modern age. A stout wall, still unbroken, lined the riverbank, and the water line was high, lapping over the small quaysides that were situated near the broken bridge. Much of the gardens on the other side of the road from the embankment wall were buried beneath fallen office blocks, but here and there a tree struck through the debris, protected from the worst of the blast by the very buildings shattered around them. Leaves washed clear of dust by the constant rain and flourishing under the humid conditions. Culver's eyes moistened at the sight. Culver is a man who's, who knows the location of an underground control room, which is just underneath uh, Hungerford Bridge. And he thinks if he can get there, he can uh, get to the whoever's in charge of London during the catastrophe. But when he opens the door, he finds not a control room functioning, but a room that's infested with huge radioactive rats. Oh, that's awful when that happens. <laughs> so then the story becomes a, a battle of human versus giant rat. Well, I'm glad we're not on radio, because if somebody had tuned in halfway through that, they might have thought it was the travel news. <laughs> Not worth going into work today. 
it just struck me that the challenges uh, afforded somebody describing a destroyed London are very different from the filmic possibilities, aren't they? Where you can put a charred and smoking landscape up in about one second and you, you can immediately take it all in. But the linearity of setting it out in text means you've got to deal with item by item. It's a matter of uh, picking the everyday items and, and making sure that people are shocked by those and then picking some of the big landscapes and you have to have to really like make an impact so this is I think why the Ministry of Defence and Big Ben are, are favourites to get destroyed So that was 2016 uh, well, we, we can only hope that 2017 is going to be a lot better can't we? hope that your 2017 is going to be fantastic. If you'd like to send a suggestion to the show, you can do so via Twitter at Londonist Sound or drop us an email info at Londonistoutloud.com. If you like the show, uh, tell somebody about it. Please tweet about it and uh, Facebook it and fly a small biplane with a banner all about us uh, high over your city. But most of all, stay safe and stay well and have a great year. That's all for 2016. My thanks for this week to Sheldon Goodman, Rob Smith, Ava Mack, Sarah Wise, Katie Wignall, Alice Bell, Max Wakefield and Katie Harris. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.